0: My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. It's really good to see all of you wonderful folks coming together to worship together and to uh, listen to the Word and and dig into the Word. We'll be doing that in a little bit. And I wanted to give a word of of kind of just appreciation here. We're in, as everybody knows, not just in America, but around the globe, in a really, really nasty recession, and no one knows how long this is going to go on. But there are folks in our congregation who have, a lot of folks actually, who have lost their jobs. And some folks have lost their homes. And uh, these are really, really tough times across the board. And I just want to say, I mean, we we, we on the staff, you know, took this very seriously. We realized we had to redo our budget. Um, We uh, went to the staff and said, here are some options. We've got to cut this much out of our budget. Uh, One option would be to just kind of let go of some folks, uh, you know, cut out some ministries or we all kind of carry the load and sacrifice. And um, our staff voluntarily took uh, uh, cuts in their pay to the point where we could cut out 10% of our whole budget based on the cuts that the staff made. And I'm just very proud of the staff doing that. Amen. And by the same token, I want to say I'm I'm really impressed with the way folks are sacrificially giving here. Uh, We've revised our budget, and we're pretty close to making that. And I know that that is, costing people stuff, uh, but I appreciate that. And uh, so thanks to you for for your faithfulness in giving. Uh, We're getting by here. Just keep on submitting all your your resources to the Lord, and uh, he'll lead you and guide you, and he'll take care of the needs of this ministry. Amen? Amen. Um, We are now going to turn to, of course, the book of Luke, which we've been studying for the last century or so. Uh, We're up to chapter 18. And I actually want to kind of preach out of a portion of the same passage I preached on last week, uh, from Luke 18, verses 20 through 37, I think it was, that I preached on last week. Before I do that, I want to pray for this message. I also want to pray for some folks who wrote me this week. Uh, you know, we've got pod listeners around the globe. It's really, some of the testimonies of the folks that we're pouring into are just beautiful. They're out there on the field, and it's just such an honor to serve them. Uh, by offering up the the messages and they download them or whatever. So I want to give a shout out to Eric and Ellie uh, who are serving in Gambia, Africa. And they're all alone. They're a young couple. They got a little child and they're serving in this Muslim village. And they're just out there daily, you know, just loving people and and serving people and spreading the good news. And what they do is a part of what we do, amen? And it's an honor to serve them. So uh, here's a shout out to, in fact, everyone say, hi, Eric and Ellie. There you go, you guys. You're not alone. It maybe feels like you're alone sometimes, but you're not alone. And as God lays them on your heart, will you pray for them? And I want to pray for them right now and pray for this message. So just agree with me in your heart and mind on this prayer. Father, we thank you for Eric, Ellie, and their their child, and God for leading them into this beautiful ministry. We pray, Lord God, that they would just know that they're not alone. You are there, and there's people of God around the planet who are there with them. I pray, Lord, that you put them on our hearts as you see fit to intercede on their behalf. I pray, Lord God, for protection for them. We together pray, Lord, that you'd have a hedge of protection around them, that the enemy couldn't sow any seeds of discouragement or a sense of isolation as they are out there in this tribe, in this village, uh, doing the ministry. And we pray, Lord, that the sweetness of your Holy Spirit would surround them and envelop them, and that they would drink deeply a sense of satisfaction over obeying you, Uh, that they plant and they water, but you give the increase, And so, Lord, uh, whether they can see immediate results for what they're doing or not, God, give them a sense of satisfaction for a job well done, just obeying you. And use them to build your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Bless this beautiful couple. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word, we ask, God, that you'd open up our minds and our hearts to receive your word, to be confronted if we need to be confronted, to be encouraged if we need to be encouraged. Uh, just apply it to our lives any way you see fit as we now open our hearts and minds to you. And bless all those who are listening through podcasting or any other means, Lord God, open their hearts and minds as well. Use this word to build your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. <laughs> amen. So last week, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get the message. I, I just felt it was, it was uh, an important one, it landed. A lot of my messages, I know they're, they're pretty weak, you know, but this one was pretty good, so, 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 so download that one. Uh, we really ask the question, why is Jesus busting this guy's chop? There's this r- 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 rich guy who comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one good, and that is God. Uh, as though you're never supposed to call anything or anyone good except for God, but Jesus himself does that. He refers to good people. So what's up? Jesus seems to have it in for this guy. And then Jesus gives him a list of commandments as though that's the way to inherit eternal life. And the guy says, well, I got that one covered. Jesus says, good for you, and now let's go on to stage two and tells him to sell everything he's got and give it to the poor. He never does requires that of anyone else before or after this guy, but this guy has got to give it all up. And so we just sort of, uh, you know, reflected on that and talked about that. And uh, what we showed last week is that Jesus is trying to drive this man's legal framework into the ground. He's trying to out-legalize the legalist. This guy, like so many today, has a legal framework, a way of of seeing his relationship with God in terms of a court of law, as though God were the judge and he were the defendant. And the main issue to be settled is how can I get acquitted? And once you are acquitted, the main issue is how can I stay acquitted? And so people today worry incessantly about can I lose my salvation? What are the things I you know, if I believe this will I lose my salvation, if I'm wrong on this will I lose my salvation, if I do this will I lose my salvation. And the whole thing occurs like in a court of law. And what we what we showed last week is that God uh, there's a legal dimension to for sure of, of what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. But God didn't create the world and die for the world so that he'd have a bunch of acquitted criminals on his hands. What he wants is a bride, amen? A, 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 a people who know him in his beauty, and and who love him because they're compelled by love. They see his beauty, and they're won over by his beauty, and they serve him out of an inner transformation, out of an inner love, not out of the the the, the legal question of how can I check something off a list and get acquitted, or or what do I do to to keep my acquittal, but rather. And the freedom of a love that wants to serve God because that's the beautiful way to live, and He's a beautiful God, and He's doing something beautiful in our life, and He's be- building a beautiful kingdom. But we can't an- enter into the marriage framework so long as we're holding on to the legal framework. And so I, I encourage you to listen to that message. Now, now, what I want to do this morning is is take another pass at this passage because there's a part of it that I didn't get to. It's another very curious aspect of this bewildering passage. And so it's found in the last uh, three verses that we read last week, verses 34 through 37, I think it is, in Luke 18. It reads like this Peter said to him, Lord, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age. And then, in the age to come, you'll receive eternal life. What is going on with this passage? Remember, as I said last week, and it's kind of a repeated refrain around here, we've got to give ourselves permission to ask tough questions. Many times, the the real meat of the word, the real treasure, is behind the question. We've got to wrestle with texts. Uh, too, Too often, we sort of gloss over it. Uh, and, and we miss the good stuff And so we're going to ask some questions about this passage I, I, I want to tell you that th- my, my first objective here Is to get us all very confused Okay, so I, I, I'm going to tell you that ahead of time But I'm also going to tell you that I'm going to resolve Or try to resolve the confusion after a little bit And I want to tell you that ahead of time Because last night I got people so confused Some of them walked out before they got the, the, you know, the clarification uh, <laughs> I mean, their brains were dripping from their ears. It was really unsightly. It was like, I can't take this anymore. So we got to ask some tough questions. It's not impious to ask questions. I, I, I think God wants us to. That's part of our, how we worship him with all of our minds. So here's some questions. Doesn't this look, honestly, like a sort of let's make a deal sort of Christianity? Let's make a deal. Uh, kind of the, a quid pro quo legal arrangement sort of a thing. Here's the deal, Jesus says you may have to sacrifice up front. You may have to lose your home and and lose your field and and, and lose your even family and relatives to follow me. But here's my promise, if you do that, then in this age, right here, right now, you'll get many times as much back. What a deal! So it looks like Jesus is sort of the the quintessential cosmic stockbroker. You know, you invest now and it will pay back later. At least that's how the stock market used to work. Uh, these days, not so much, but but you know, it, it's sort of like Jesus is the cosmic Santa Claus. If we're good boys and girls now, we get a lot of toys, not just in heaven, but even right now. It looks like let's make a deal Christianity, but that goes against, doesn't it, the, the kind of flavor of Jesus' whole ministry? He usually isn't into let's make a deal sort of stuff. So what's up with this passage? It's especially puzzling because some of the stuff that he promises, is hard to figure out how could it be good that that would be... Uh, Increased. I mean, for example, he says that you'll have, if you leave your family, if you have to leave your family uh, to follow him, you leave your wives and children. Well, then you'll have much more of this in this age. You can have more wives or more husbands in this age if you follow Jesus. I can just hear the testimony now. Back when I was a sinner, I only had one wife, but now that I follow Jesus, I have 20. Like, that would be a positive thing. It's like, who wants more husbands and wives? One's hard enough. But um, last I checked, Jesus was monogamous. I mean, he believes in monogamy, right? So what is up with this passage? There's something kind of strange going on. Now, what we normally do, too quickly, is we tend to try to conform, almost instinctively conform passages to fit our common sense. We impose our common sense on the word of God, to make it more manageable, to make it make sense to us. And that's not always wrong, but it usually is. Uh, We miss and water down the radical edge of the gospel when we do that. So what could happen is we might instinctively think, well, obviously Jesus means this in a metaphorical, spiritual sense. Um, He's saying that if we leave all and follow him, he will bless us internally. It's like rejoice in your hearts. Uh, don't, don't 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 make it too out loud. You know, extroverted in your hearts, in a spiritual sense, he will bless you, and it will be as though you had more houses and fields and 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 family and relatives, uh, because the joy will just overwhelm you. And there might be some truth in that. Certainly, Jesus does. Certainly, Jesus does fulfill us when we follow him. But I don't think that explains this passage. Uh, Jesus says, whoever leaves the house and and home, and if need be, family and relatives, will receive many times as much. And it's a comparative phrase, comparing apples with apples. It refers back to what he's talking about. If you leave the family in the fields, you'll receive many times as much of the family in fields. So there's really no room here to spiritualize it. In fact, if you look at the parallel passage in Mark, same episode, just a little bit different version found in Mark, it's very explicit. He says this, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children of fields, for me and the gospel, will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. And if you're tempted to spiritualize this, Jesus says, what I'm talking about, is homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. In the age to come, you'll receive eternal life. So here he's, he specifies that he's talking about homes and, 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 and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields. So he can't spiritualize it. What is up with this? Now at this point, some folks come along, and God bless them, they're sincere, they mean well, uh, they're calling the shots as they see them, but they will take this and say, well... What this means is that if I follow Jesus, he is going to give me a hundred times as much house and fields as I had before. And I've heard it preached, and I've heard people confess that uh, since I'm following Jesus, I will stand on my inheritance, and I am here to tell you I I have a right as a child of the king to a house a hundred times better than what I had before and, uh, and, and fields a hundred times better and, and more prosperous than I had before because God wants to bless me as his kid and make me very, very rich. And this is what's called the prosperity gospel, and this is one of the key verses that they go by. Standing on the promises of God. He says, I'll have more homes and more fields. And so you believe it and have faith and confess it. Now, there's a couple questions that I have about that interpretation. Is, remember, it's important to ask questions. Um, here's, here's one question. You'll note here that Jesus predicates the promise on the condition, and the condition is if you leave your house and field and, and, and family and friends for the gospel's sake, then you will receive a hundred times as much. So first question, did you actually leave that stuff before you started confessing this? Most folks haven't. They just wanna, they want the, the, the benefit without the sacrifice. Okay, That's point number one. Point number two is Jesus, as you may have noticed if you were here last week, this whole passage, is he, he gives a warning about the rich. It's really hard for the rich to enter into ke- the kingdom of heaven. We have trouble letting go. Okay, So it's hard for the, the rich, as hard as it is for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. Now, it would be odd, I think, if Jesus, after having warned us about the dangers of riches, says... In the next breath, virtually, by the way, if you follow me, I'll make you rich. Which means, by the way, if you follow me, I'll make it hard for you to get to heaven. I'm just saying. Okay, so questions. Here's another question. That's worth asking as long as we're on a roll. Um, Why is it that the disciples, his earliest disciples, those faithful people who left all to follow him, how come they never cashed in on the homes and the field and all the rest? I mean, the, the record is very clear here that these folks... Uh, when they followed Jesus, they were, just a little while after this episode, they were persecuted, they were, they were delivered up, they lost their homes, they lost their fields, they lost their families, they were fed to lions, their kids were, were fed to lions. Uh, they didn't get a bunch of homes, they didn't get a bunch of fields, they never retired in a wealthy way. Only one of them survived that we know of, and that was John, and he got uh, exiled to an island. So if this is some kind of promise from God about how we're going to live wealthy, how come they didn't cash in on it? In fact, that leads to this question. Um, You'll note here that when Jesus promises the homes and the fields and the family and the relatives multiplied, he also includes a hundred times over persecutions. That's part of the promise. Uh, Why don't we have anyone preaching a persecution gospel? I'm standing on the promises of God that when I follow Jesus, I'll be persecuted a hundred times over. Uh, No one's doing that. They just want their homes in the fields, but the persecutions they leave out. But that's part of the whole package. Which leads to another question that my compulsive brain has. If we're just really being honest here, you know, this this ought to make our our, our brains start to melt. It's not even clear to me how Jesus can promise in one and the same breath, Multiple, 100 times over, home, fields, family, friends, etc. But also promise persecutions. Aren't those a little bit incompatible? Does anyone else see a problem here? Because in the first seconds, first and second, third and fourth centuries, if you got persecuted, they took away your home, and they took away your field, and they took away your family, and everyone dies. So how can Jesus promise in one of the same breath? 100 times more homes and fields and family and friends and persecution it seems mutually contradictory and now I would just want to just for the fun of it say have a good day go home <laughs> see this is at the point where last night a couple of people just walked out like you did die I don't come to church to have some preacher screw up my brain knock it off okay What's going on here? See, and and we just got to wrestle with this. I assume Jesus is sane. So he doesn't talk self-contradictory stuff. Okay, that's my working assumption. So if we're not getting it, the problem is on us, not on him. So what aren't we getting? Here is what I think we're not getting. We tend to, most of the people in this auditorium and listening through podcasts or television or whatever, most of us, not all of us, but most of us, Uh, bring to our reading of the Word of God or our hearing of the Word of God a Western grid. We have a Western paradigm, and at the center of this Western paradigm, through which we read and interpret everything, is a real strong individualism. We, we, We bring our modern, Western, individualistic, consumeristic grid to the Bible. And we tend to read everything from that perspective. And so when we read Jesus say, you will have a hundred times the homes and fields and family and friends, we tend to think he must mean, I will personally own a hundred times more houses and a hundred times more fields and a hundred times more family and friends. But of course, as I just showed, that doesn't make any sense of the text, which just shows if we let it, uh, that our assumptions that we bring to the text must be wrong. This is why it's so good to let the Bible rattle our cages, Because that's the only way he can begin to upset our assumptions that we bring to the text. And so when we read the Bible from our modern, Western, individualistic, consumeristic culture, uh, it tends to screw everything up. It doesn't make any sense. Now there are, are, I think, two clues. There's more than this, but I only have time for two. Two real good clues as to what Jesus is, in fact, getting at when he promises a hundred times more homes and fields and family and friends. The first clue is this. Some of you may know that uh, about midway into Jesus' ministry, his mother and brothers thought he'd gone crazy. The Bible says that. They knew that he was doing supernatural stuff, which they were happy for, but he was starting to make claims about himself that only a madman would make, they thought. He was claiming to be the Messiah, for example, and claiming to be one with the Father and coming down from heaven and all sorts of other stuff. They thought he'd gone crazy. It says that in the Bible. So they went out to get him because they were afraid he was going to get himself killed. And that worry was a little bit legitimate. And so they went to get him to bring him home. So they come to this house, and Jesus is ministering in this house, and the place is packed so they can't get in. So then we read this account. Someone says to Jesus, "Uh, Jesus, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you, But Jesus replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus here, in an incredibly radical and profound way, is redefining family relationships. Now, Jesus loves his biological mother, and Jesus loves his biological brothers for sure. But what Jesus is most about, and what we're to be most about, is seeking first, a head of family, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He seeks first the kingdom of God. And so for Jesus, other people who are also seeking first the kingdom of God, his disciples, are his new family unit the ties he has with them the family ties he has with them are stronger than his biological ties if the people with whom he has biological ties are not seeking to do the will of God and at this point Mary and Jesus's brothers aren't doing the will of God in fact they're trying to interfere with the will of God and so he points to his disciples and says this is my mother and my brothers this is my family because what is most important to him and the strongest ties he's got are other people who are seeking to live under the reign of God, what's called the kingdom of God. So, so that's clue number one. There's a, Jesus has a unique vision of the kingdom as a family that is stronger than biological ties. Clue number two, this we find in the early church. Uh, after the day of Pentecost, we read this. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And in case you didn't get it, two chapters later, Luke repeats it. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. They did have possessions. They just didn't claim them as their own. But they shared everything they had. And God's grace was so powerful at work in all of them that there was no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And the very next verse says, And God added to the church daily as many as should be saved. This is one of the ways the early church grew. Imagine, if you can, this community. These, these are folks who have said yes to Jesus. They've surrendered their life to Jesus. They're seeking to live under the reign of God, under the rule of God, the kingdom of God. That's, that's one thing they all have in common, and it's more than enough. Now, Jesus taught them, and Jesus taught us, that we're not to have any possessions. Uh, He says it in a number of different ways in a number of different passages. The clearest is one that we looked at a couple months ago in Luke 14, where Jesus says, no one who follows me can have any possessions. Unless you're willing to give up everything, you cannot be called my disciple. Now, he doesn't mean that you can't legally own stuff because we know that his disciples, uh, both in his ministry and then in the early church, continued to legally own stuff. But no one, they had possessions, but they didn't consider it their possessions. Everything was given up. Imagine this community. They they, they surrender everything they have to God, and therefore they surrender everything they have to God's community. Which is why if God puts it on someone's heart to sell their home, they sell their home. If they're supposed to sell their field and put it at the apostles' feet, they sell their field and put it at the apostles' feet. No one is clinging to anything. It's a radical community. And the ties between these early Christians who are together seeking to do the will of God are stronger than their biological ties if the people with whom they have biological ties are not also seeking to do the kingdom of God. This is their new family. It's a, it's a beautiful, radical vision of the kingdom as community. People coming together and offering up all that they have to one another. And so imagine, if you will, Peter. Here's Peter. Before he was a follower of Jesus, he had his little small Palestinian house and his little small Palestinian field and his family, however big that was, let's say he had two kids, wife and two kids. And they're doing life in a normal Galilean fisherman kind of a way. And if for any reason he lost that house and lost that field, he and his family would be out on the street. There's no safety nets in the first century. But Peter obeys the call of God and follows Jesus, and somehow the needs in his family get met while he's away. And now, after the day of Pentecost, they're here together in Jerusalem with others, uh, hundreds of people who are also seeking to do the will of God. And they've surrendered their lives over to Jesus, and they've surrendered their possessions over to to, to God, and so it belongs to God and, and the community. And now if Peter were to lose his home or his field, he wouldn't be out on the street. He'd be in the middle of a community. And there'd be other people who have maybe extra space in their house or an extra home or an extra field, and they would welcome Peter in. Or if there were others in the community who lost their home and field and Peter had some extra space or some resources, he would invite them in. There's a tremendous safety net that is here, and it's the safety net of God's love. This is the kingdom community. And in a very real sense, the sense I'm sure Jesus means in this passage, Peter now has inherited a hundred times as many houses as he had before, a hundred times as many fields as he had before, and yes, he's got mothers now and fathers and brothers and sisters that he didn't have before. If If his mom dies, uh, there's other women in the, in the community who will take over that role if he needs them to. If his father dies, same thing. Uh, there, there's other children that he can begin to take, take, take under his fold as the need arises. Everybody has everything in common. They're sharing with one another. And I'm convinced that this is what Jesus is talking about when he gives this promise that if you follow me and become part of this kingdom community, you will be uh, blessed a hundredfold with your house and your fields and, and all the rest Uh, It it will be given to you. What Jesus is doing in the passage that we're looking at here, and he does it in a number of different ways throughout the gospel, is he's inviting us to a radically, radically different way of doing life. He's inviting us into the kingdom community and into the joy and the security that comes with this kingdom community. In Jesus' vision for the kingdom, it's, it's first and foremost a community. In Jesus' vision for the kingdom, when, when, when people surrender to the reign of God, they, they, they lose all their possessions. They no longer are clinging to stuff as their own private property, but they offer it up to God and they offer it up to one another and they're willing to share as God leads them. Uh, in Jesus' vision for the kingdom community, people are coming together and they're learning how to love one another like Christ loves them and sacrifice for one another as Christ sacrifices for them and they're discovering the joy of doing life that way. And Jesus' vision for the kingdom community. The community is becoming one as he and the Father are one. Uh, The community manifests something of God, because God is love. God is self-sacrificial love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the community begins to manifest towards one another through their care and sacrifice and and holding uh, one another up. They're manifesting that kind of love. And in doing that, they're fulfilling Jesus' prayer in John 17. When Jesus prayed, Father, right before he died, Father, I pray that they may be one, that they may be one, even as you and I are one, that the world will know that you have sent me. Think about this. The way the world is supposed to know that Jesus is sent from the Father, that Jesus is for real, is because they see something different in this community of people who follow Jesus. Jesus. There's a love there. There's a power there. There's a care and a concern there. They don't see anywhere else. And that is part of what convinces them that, that God is real. In 1 John, he says it this way. God is love, but his love is made complete. It's, it's fulfilled in us. The world can't see God, but they can see us, and they're supposed to be, see something of God in us. And one of the ways they see something of God in us when they see the love that we have for one another and the way that we do life together and the way that we don't cling to our possessions but rather are willing to, to, to share them. This is the vision of the kingdom that Jesus has and it's radical and it's beautiful and this is what he's talking about here. Now, we, most of us, modern Western individualistic consumer people have got to ask the question, what do we do with that? What do we do with this? Here's the thing. This vision of the kingdom was radical even by first century standards. And the first century was way more community oriented than ours is. Uh, these folks hung out with each other naturally in ways that, that, that we don't. And it was still radical for them. In the first century, Palestine, they don't have the American dream to chase like we do, uh, they don't have 60 hour work week jobs to maintain like we do. Uh, They don't have television sucking up 20 to 25 hours of of each week the way the average American does. They don't have internet to suck up another 10 to 15 hours a week as the average American does. They don't have cell phones, and they don't have iPods, and and, and Twitters, whatever they are, and and all the rest, the things that nickel and dime us of all of our time so we don't have time for, for, for relationships like this. The first century didn't have any of that, and yet it was radical even for them. How much more radical is it for us? And yet, and yet if we are kingdom people and want to live in the way of Jesus, we've got to ask the question, if that's the ideal, how do we begin to move there? How do we begin to move in that direction? If our profession of faith means anything, it means that we're going to hold the ideal before us and start moving in that direction, inch by inch. Now, there are some folks, mainly younger folks, who haven't yet caught up in in the stream and the pattern of American life, there are folks all around the the states and all around the globe, actually, who are just saying, who who are getting this. They're realizing how the Western church on the whole hasn't gotten this, and they're saying, let's do it. So they sell everything they've got, and they move in together, and and they form what are called monastic communities. Some of you have heard the urban monastic movement, where these folks are moving into the inner city, and and, and they're having all things in common, and they're serving the poor, and, and they're living life that way. And it's a thing of beauty, and it looks very much like the book of Acts. Uh, we've got some folks here at Woodland Hills Church who are doing this, especially among our younger folks. In our emerging generation, we've got the Hamlin House, where some young people have said, let's move into this, this house together and start doing life. And they come up with kind of a, they tap into the church tradition to come up with some monastic rules that they're going to live by and pray together and hold one another accountable and serve the neighborhood and things of that sort. And it's beautiful. And we've got groups like that kind of popping up at Woodland Hills all over the place. It's a movement that's, that's out there, and It's beautiful. But most of us, I'm thinking, who are listening to this message right now probably aren't there yet. And maybe we don't feel called to live in that kind of community. Fine. But we still have to ask the question, how do we inch towards that? How do we make movements towards that? So I want to hear in the next 10 minutes offer three things, three basic things to get started. You got you to gotta take a first step before you can run a marathon. And we just got to be real with where we're at. We are, most of us, a million miles away from anything that looks remotely like the Book of Acts sort of community. Many of us maybe even fear that. I got that. I talked to one person in the first service who comes out of this kind of cult that had this kind of communal thing. And man, buzzers were going off all over the place. And I get that. And, and, And the trouble with her community thing was that there was a tyrant running the whole thing, imposing rules, and it was a bunch of legalism. And I'm not talking about that. I hope you can see this. It's about just forming Christ-like relationships, covenant relationships with other people. Three things we can do to begin to go in that healthy, Christ-like, beautiful kingdom, book of Acts direction. Number one, commit to not possessing anything and asking God to help you let it go. This is the first step. It really is a non-negotiable, folks. Jesus says it as clear as can be. If you're going to follow me, you can't own anything. Now, you may legally own it, but you can't grab onto it. You can't possess it. Uh, And so the the first step is to say, whatever I got isn't mine. It belongs to God, and therefore it belongs to whoever God wants me to share it with. Uh, And pray that God will help you let it go, because we we are culturally conditioned, systematically conditioned to cling as a source of life. That is part of our indoctrination under the, the principalities and powers. Most of us are indoctrinated to cling to our stuff as mine, mine, mine. It's, a, it's that two-year-old toddler mindset. We never really get out of it. Mine, not yours, mine. And God's saying, no, it's mine. <laughs> and you got to let it go. It's not good for you to cling to stuff. And so you let it go. A good spiritual exercise that you might engage in on your own in your, in your time with God is to simply uh, imagine, and we'll help you with this with the anime uh, course, that we'll be getting into. But, but for right now, just imagine somehow, represent in your mind all your possessions and, and put them in the palm of your hands, like your house or the boat or the cabin or, 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 or your field, whatever it may be. And then you open up your palms and represent the house there or the clothing or whatever it is, and you just give it to God. You just offer it to God and put it into his giant hand. I mean, it's just kind of a way of, of, of imagining this. It's, it's, a, it's an exercise of letting go. You, you, you give him the house. God, this is your house. Uh, God, this, these are your clothes. Uh, God, this is your job. This is your bank account. Uh, this is your boat. You know, it all belongs to you. Even my life, my health, my reputation, it all belongs to you, and you surrender everything to him. That is, by the way, folks, simply what it means. That may strike you as radical, but in the first century, if you called someone Lord, that's what it meant. For Jesus to be Lord means he's Lord over all of those things. We modern Western folks have created this unintelligible invention of Jesus being Lord but over nothing in particular. (laughs) Oh, he's he's Lord of my life, but everything else is mine. Well, you know, your life is the total sum of all the stuff you think is yours. So for him to be Lord is to be Lord over that. And so it's a good discipline to, to continually be surrendering your stuff to him, And it needs to be regular because here's part of our fallen nature. You'll surrender to him on Sunday morning, but by Sunday night, you took it back. You don't know that you took it back. But see, that's because you're so good at taking it back, you don't even notice when you're doing it. Same thing for me. You know, we just sort of gradually like, I'll take that back, or that, you know, that, that too. Uh, No, he wants it, and he wants to keep it. And then he wants to direct us on what we do with it. And so pray that God will help you let it go and keep letting it go. And then ask the question. God, how would you have me to use this to bless others? Because if we're kingdom people who seek first the kingdom of God, that means we seek him first with our house. And we seek him first with our car. We seek him first with our job. We seek him first with our bank account. We seek him first with our money. The main purpose for everything is to advance the kingdom. And so we ask the question, God, how how, how do you want me to steward these resources? And he will lead you and direct you. And if you're in a small group or a group of friends that you're doing the kingdom with, you ask it together. Uh, how would God have us steward our resources? Are there extra stuff here that we can use to bless the poor? And I'm happy to say that there's a, a lot of this going on at Woodland Hills Church already, and, 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 and it's beautiful. And some of it's pretty radical. Uh, there's a group on the west side, a bunch of people who kind of are living in the same community, and, and they're asking the question, how can we you know, sort of pool our resources to have more things in common? They have their own separate houses or whatever, but what does it look like for us to do Book of Acts and to, and to open it up for, to other people? Do we all need a snowblower? Maybe one snowblower will do it, and let's share that snowblower and maybe take turns on snowblowing each other's driveways. In fact, while we're at it, why don't we serve the whole block by snowblowing the whole block with the one, the, the one uh, uh, snowplow that we have? Why do we have to double shovel on everything? Why does everyone need to have all the good stuff? Mine! Uh, no, no, how about, how, do, how about if we share this? And that not only, that not only you know, uh, saves money, which is no small consideration, but it also builds relationship. You're doing life together. And they're actually inviting uh, the, whole, the whole block to start doing this and say, listen, let, let's I mean, have a co-op and, and pool our resources and pool our talents. Here's Joe the plumber, who's good at plumbing and getting on television with politics. So here's Joe the plumber. He likes to fix... Here's Susie, homemaker, and and she needs plumbing. And she can't afford to hire a plumber, but she does love kids. Joe's got three kids and never gets out with his wife because they can't afford a babysitter. Hello! You see, and so here's a way of saying, let's let's do life together. And you're bringing folks in, even if they're not believers, you're bringing into a little slice of the kingdom because this is really how life was supposed to be lived. So the first and most fundamental thing is, lose all the possessions it's not yours and really like that it's not yours it belongs to god and therefore god's community and he'll lead you and direct you on how he wants to use it another illustration of this is it was just beautiful just recently uh, there's two twins teenage twins uh, who are virtually homeless on the east side now one of them is pregnant they got no place to go somehow they come in contact with someone here from woodland hills church And they say, well, look, we've got a little bit of space down in our basement, and it's not much, but it's better than what you're going to get if you're in in some shelter. So why don't you come in? And uh, it's not fixed up or anything, but we'll see what we can do. And then this family goes to... Uh, their small group and their community and, and to others on the neighborhood and they say here's the thing we got these two young girls one of them's pregnant they got nothing uh, you know is there anybody here who knows how to do some electricity so we can fix up our basement does anyone here do drywalling maybe we can put a carpet down there uh, is, does anyone have some uh, furniture we need a cabinet we need some clothes we need some you know a coffee maker or whatever and, and yada 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 and people come out of the woodwork and they're saying, well, look, at I, I got a stroller here that, I, I, that I'm not going to use anymore. Give it to the kids. And, and here's some baby clothes. And here's a bass, bassinet. And here, here's a cabinet. And here's a stove. And, and, and now they've got this furnace downstairs uh, that's not a five-star hotel, but it's really nice. In the meantime, these two girls are going, what is going on with these people? They don't know us. They don't owe us anything. And yet they're coming around us and they're loving on us. The kingdom is invading these guys' life. You see how it works? And see, that is how, that's how God adds to the church. In the early church. this was one of the main selling points. People saw that kind of love, and it's like, man, I want in on that. Uh, So the first, the first task is to, to lose all the possessions and surrender to God. Secondly, ask God to help you be honest with yourself. Examine yourself and ask the question, honestly, am I too bought into American idols? I'm not talking about the show. I'm talking about, the, although that might be another idol, but I, I, I'm, it's a question we've got to always ask ourselves. And if you're in a small group of people that you trust, you ask the question together: Are we too bought into American idols? Uh, you know, I, many folks say, oh, "I'm just too busy to develop these kind of relationships, these close relationships." I want to submit to you that if you're too busy to develop kingdom relationships, you're too busy. You're just too busy. Uh, this isn't like a, a peripheral negotiable thing. This is, this, is a, uh, this is what it means to be in the kingdom. And so ask the question, are you maybe too bought into the American dream? Maybe you're too much of the little rat on the treadmill chasing that proverbial cheese, and maybe God's going to tell you now it's time to get off. Uh, maybe, you, you, you know, do you need that 60-hour-a-week job? And maybe you're saying, well, I sure do, because otherwise I can't make my mortgage payment. Well, maybe if you submit to God, he'll say, well, you know what, you don't need such a big mortgage. Uh, you know, and, and do you really need that? Um, you know, do you, maybe you're spending too much time in front of the television. Maybe you're spending too much time on the internet. Maybe you're t- spending too much time on the, on the telephone. Turn it off once in a while. Maybe you twit too much, whatever that is. You know, whatever... We get nickel and dimed of our time and our energy and our resources to the point where we hardly have any time for our family, let alone for friends. But God is saying that's not the best way to do life. The best way to do life is under the reign of God. And when you come under the reign of God, you you start living more simply. You simplify, you downgrade to create space, sacred space, to invest in relationships, family, friends, and whatever, because this is the kingdom of God. Honestly examine yourself. And ask God and God's community for wisdom on modifications you can make to start living a different kind of a life. And that leads to my third thing, and the final thing is, 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 is this. Pray and seek out possible kingdom communities. It was never God's design for, for there to be lone rangers. It's just, in the New Testament, it's, it's a contradiction in terms. To belong to the body of Christ is to be part of the body of Christ. You can no, no more be a lone ranger Christian than my finger can, can do what it's supposed to do as a finger apart from my hand. We've got to be connected one way or another. Pray and seek out kingdom communities if you're not already in them. You might start with one of these anime groups. I encourage you to try that. Uh, get involved in, in, in one of these groups and, and, and just get it, put your toe in the water about what community is like. Um, you, you, you can, I know some folks have, have maybe tried small groups and it backfired, it fizzled, or you got wounded, and that happens. We're talking about fallen human beings. So yes, it's sometimes going to happen. Don't give up. And, and if our small group ministry thing doesn't really help you, then that's fine. But ask God to, to have your radar up to meet other people who've got similar kingdom values that you can do kingdom life with. Take advantage of opportunities that we have around here. Uh, we have this meet and eat once in a while after service, once a month. Go out and meet some people. Spend some time on the gathering area meeting some people. Take advantage of various opportunities we have here, like the family experience. Come out and be a part of that. Uh, you know, the dance that we had the other night. Uh, join a ministry, children's church ministry or whatever. That's a great way to, to meet other people. And it may be that one person out of ten, all of a sudden you, you realize there's a connection there and maybe they want to do kingdom life with and you start kind of growing in a small group direction there. Another idea, uh, in June, uh, June 13th, we'll be having leadership training uh, for people who are willing to start small groups. Best way to get into a small group is to start one. And, and we need folks to step up. And what we're doing now, more intentionally than we did before, is, is pouring some of this kind of beautiful, radical acts type of vision into these small groups uh, to start moving in the direction. It doesn't happen overnight. It's, and it's got to happen naturally. It can't be forced or coerced or anything. It's got to happen naturally. But this, folks, is the direction that we need to be growing. And it's, it's very un-American in that it confronts a real stronghold of American culture, that individualistic, consumeristic kind of a thing. Our vision here at Woodland Hills Church is, is, is just this. We want to be growing in the direction of being a network of missional communities. Groups around the Twin Cities who are doing life together, serving their neighborhoods in one way or another. And they'll maybe be divided up into regions where they, once in a while they get together with others who are in their vicinity, who are also doing the kingdom, and they celebrate together. And this, we'll still have this weekend seminar, as we're doing now, but our, our goal is to be fueling these sorts of, uh, of missional communities. Now, we're not there yet. We're, we're a long ways from that. We'll have some new initiatives we're going to be launching uh, in the fall. But don't wait for that to happen right now. Surrender everything you've got to God. Examine your life to say, am I too bought into American idols? And then be seeking out kingdom communities. So you can begin to do, uh, multiply the homes and multiply the fields and multiply the friends and multiply the relatives. That is life under the reign of God. And that's how you have more homes. In the middle of a recession, you have more homes, more fields. Because you're not clinging to yours and they're not clinging to theirs. I want to ask the prayer team to come up. Remember, this is a, uh, a seminar, and as usual, there's an assignment for you. I want you to take this assignment seriously, please. Stop by at the Hub, pick up an assignment sheet, some things to pray and talk with others about as we uh, together move in a kingdom direction. And if you're here and you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward uh, at the end of the service and, uh, and, and pray with these folks. Let me close with this prayer. Father, break the stronghold of American Western individualism in our life. Uh, Break the stronghold of possessiveness in our life, of ownership in our life. Free us, God, to begin to grow in the direction, however fast or however slow, of of, of being a people who manifest your loving reign by how we relate to one another, Lord God. Uh, Free us from the strongholds that we don't notice. Like fish swimming in water, it's hard for us to really notice the ways in which we're in bondage. But wake us up, Lord God, to ways we've bought into the American idol, to ways that we have bought into individualism, consumerism, and to be willing to let go of everything for the sake of the kingdom and to find and discover the joy and the exuberance and the abundance of life that comes from living life in community with others. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said... Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom. Spend some time talking to one another out there.